0: No country has ever prospered that failed to put its own interests first. We will no longer surrender this country or its people to the false song of globalism. New Right Network presents Right Now, the featured podcast of New Right Network. Mobilizing, countering the left, energizing the right new right network home of the new right movement
1: and welcome to right now the featured podcast of the new right network with me today is not only a special guest and i'm excited to talk to with great insight but also a contributor here at nrn and he is a businessman he's a phd and an economist and that is daniel lasalle dan how are you doing today
0: Oh, uh, very well. Thank you very much, Ryan. Thanks for having me.
1: You know, um, actually, people in NRN um, when they talk about you, they mention you and your credentials. They pronounce your last name in all kinds of crazy ways. I've heard them like, I don't know how, because I, I, my last name, people put an, my last name's Ash, and they put Ashay on the end of it, and you know, it's because I have an E, and the people have called you La Soleil and all kinds of weird stuff. And I'm like, guys, it can't be that hard of a name, right?
0: Well, the name, yeah. Well, the name is Daniel Lacaille, uh, but uh,
1: Ed, well, it they re- messed it up. I, I apologize. So
0: you, you were very, you were very close. That's no problem whatsoever. But, uh, but usually, and it's, and I've been used to this for uh, for the last uh, woof, uh, thirty years at least uh, in the English speaking world. It's much easier to say Daniel Lacal. Everybody, everybody gets it that way, and uh, Lacal is fine. So Daniel Lacal, and
1: and we're ready to go. <laughs> well, I did have a pretty good stab at it, though, so I'm happy. All right. So, uh, you know, let's get right to the meat and potatoes of this. Uh, You know, in the news, uh, the Hong Kong protests are huge and also our trade war with China. And in light of Elon Musk having the quote last week uh, or earlier this week when it was, uh, he said that China is the future. What are your thoughts on that from an economic standpoint?
0: Well, I would disagree with Mr. Musk in a few things, uh, not all of them, but definitely on that one. China's not the future. China is the past. Unfortunately, in terms of uh, of the economic model, the Chinese model, unfortunately, uh, uh, and the one that the government is, is, is implementing very aggressively, is actually the past. It's actually about... Uh, supporting GDP with white elephants, big government spending, massive uh, planification and and planning uh, for 20-odd years. So it's very similar, actually, to the central planned models that we saw in the uh, late uh, 30s, early 40s. So it has very little to do with, with the future in the overall economic model. Obviously, China does have a very uh, high growth sector in technology and has numerous excellent uh, companies that are doing great things uh, that are closer to what the future is going to be. But unfortunately, the model looks uh, scarily similar to the directed interventionist economies that we saw uh, in the pre-World War II era.
1: I think something that really scares a lot of I would say us here in the West is the advancements they've made in both 5g and also in quantum computing you know many yeah. experts have said that they're ahead of us in quantum computing uh, and what are you what's your feelings on China specifically in the realm of high tech and can they compete and can they beat us um
0: I I think that it's very difficult for China to beat the United States for a very subtle but simple reason. Innovation and technology in the United States is a meritocratic approach. It comes from the best. They become successful. Some of them fail. Others pick up the tab and go and make the idea better. The process in China is directed by the government. And as such, unfortunately, it in a long term is is deemed to lose a lot of opportunities. There are great things happening in China, and they're definitely advancing in technology. What I think is extremely exaggerated, and the facts show it, the fact that it is it is common knowledge, and there are numerous studies about how much uh, intellectual property, China actually takes from the United States uh, and and doesn't unfortunately pay for it. No, but uh, I think it's it's pretty difficult that a system that is not merit and profit based, that a system that is controlled by government and is directed by government ends up beating a system that is merit and profit based like the United States won. The the reason why the United States has uh, created these incredible technology giants is also because the United States did not create them from government initiative. It's also because many of them failed in the process. Many of them uh, actually were bankrupt and failed in the dot-com bubble. And from there, a lot of things were learned and, and companies got stronger. So I think that, that is, that's small but incredibly important element is missing in the Chinese model. Is the, the, the the fact that most of the technology giants that we know in China, some of them great companies, are directed by people whose main common denominator is that they belonged to the Communist Party or belong to the Communist Party, and as such uh, are very unlikely to be innovators, very very much uh, actually more uh, central planners and engineers in which they actually are doing great things. But I don't see them, to be fairly honest, as... A force that could compete with a thriving technology sector in the United
1: States. I couldn't agree more with you, actually. Um, another thing that I think that's really pressing, and I think on people's minds is this uh, trade war. and then Trump saying, you know, uh, to CEOs and business leaders saying, you know you need to basically rethink your supply chain, move to other um, Southeast Asian countries, perhaps. you know, uh, comes to mind Vietnam, Singapore, Malaysia. What are your thoughts on uh, that, and how do you think that's going to play out on the international scene? Mm-hmm.
0: I think that uh, the, we need to we need to take a couple of steps back to uh, steps back, sorry, to understand what is happening when the the free trade movement with China started, and when we started to really open the economies to the Chinese trade, the the general consensus was that the Chinese economy was an intervened economy, was obviously a, an economy and, and a government with numerous levels of, of flaws compared to the open uh, democracies and, and economies that we knew. However, that with higher growth and higher levels of uh, open uh, openness, uh, China would open the economy as well. Now, um, I would recommend anybody that's that's watching us uh, today to read a book that's called uh, We Have Been Harmonized uh, about China. And China has done the opposite. China, instead of opening its economy, has been closing the economy. Uh, it's, it's the only economy in the large economies that maintains capital controls. The currency is fixed every morning by the uh, central bank. The, uh, the It also has no discernible difference between the uh, judicial power and the political power. Uh, there are numerous things that make it extremely difficult for companies to uh, actually thrive in China. Therefore, I think that the message from President Trump is actually based more on the idea that many of those companies built uh, capacity in China because it's obviously a gigantic market, great opportunity. It's also It also offered very, very attractive opportunities in terms of setting up. However, the quid pro quo did not happen. The opportunity for the companies to implement their businesses in China was not the same. The adherence to property laws, to legal security, to investment security that we all know in countries like, like the UK, in countries in the Eurozone, in in the United States, etc., did not happen. So, in the Obama administration, what they took was, let's say, I would say, a disguised protectionist approach, which was, uh, on one side, they... Maintained the the open market with China, and at the same time, you saw, for example, uh, tariffs on solar panels, things like this. But you know, sort of with an open with an open view. I think that what President Trump has has been extremely worried about, and his administration, and probably uh, that's what has led to what we currently call the trade war. Which I would disagree, but anyway, that's a different story. Um, is that china has not opened its economy has closed its economy and that the decision of the communist party to let uh, president prime minister xi jinping have a lifetime uh, tenure does not help either in terms of of opening of the of the economy so it, it is so what we what i understand is the is the is the idea that things might get worse if the Chinese economy does not start to take actions to open the barriers to trade that it has. And those barriers are not just tariffs. This is another key part of the debate is that everybody's talking about tariffs. It's not about tariffs. It's about property, uh, intellectual property, Uh, agreements, it's about uh, rule of law, it's about independence of the legal system, it's about independence of the free press, it's about independence and openness of the capital markets, and here Hong Kong is a key factor. And therefore, I think that what the, 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 the Trump administration has done is to think, look, if we continue down the easy route, things are going to get a lot worse. It's not that China is, is making baby steps to get better, which is what we all expected, me included, 10, 15 years ago, is that they're taking baby steps back. So, uh, so we cannot talk from the same level. We need to start a negotiation process in which all of these factors that we've been talking about, intellectual property, openness, the, the different uh, uh, systems in terms of legal and investment security, need to be addressed.
1: I don't know if uh, we read the same books and websites or anything, but I 100 percent agree with pretty much everything you just said. Um, I think that what gets me about China is, you know, people say, you know, it's the profit motive, you know, in capitalism. And one thing that China China proves is there's one thing stronger than greed, and that is ideology. Uh, It it appears to be. But I will say that uh, the future, I agree with I disagree with uh, Mr. Musk as well. I think the future actually lies in two economies that are going, by and large, untapped. And I think you've seen it be talked about South America and all that. But I think the real future, as far as not heavy manufacturing, but I think it lies in the former Eastern Bloc. And I think you might be able to speak to some of that. And um, I think you see the antithesis, and I think this is what makes it relevant to our Chinese conversation, is basically they are coming out of that uh, the frozen uh, – state they were in and that that held back their innovation what are your thoughts what's happening in eastern europe and what could china learn in the long term post-communism in eastern europe well I,
0: i i would agree with that i think that the the if we look at supply chain opportunities and the way that the world is shaping eastern europe is showing much better opportunities because of the Precisely because most of those Eastern European countries have learned the lesson of totalitarianism, sorry, totalitarianism, and they don't want anything with that anymore. No, so it's not it's not toying around. They're not toying around with the idea, and I think that also because uh, in terms of the of logistics and new markets, it, it also makes sense. Uh, I think that it's also. It's not about demonizing China. It's about it's about having a dialogue with China and saying to the Chinese government, to the great Chinese people, and the fantastic Chinese companies, there, this this path that the government is taking is the wrong path for China. This is the key. Uh, a part that I'm trying to address, is that if the government continues down this path of extreme debt, massive overcapacity, uh, directed economy, central plan, etc., it's going to be bad for China. We don't want things to go badly for China. We want things to go well for China, for Eastern Europe, etc. I think that the Eastern European countries uh, provide this tremendous opportunity in terms of both the link to the West and the East, as well as uh, a culture that is very uh, engraved of opportunity. And a, and a culture in which the rule of law investment security and opportunities for everybody are also uh, taking hold very very quickly and I think that those those are factors that are important and that uh, US companies and European companies need to be need, need to be taking uh, taking a lot of paying a lot of attention to so I think that that is that is I would agree with that let's say uh, a tangible Uh, opportunity uh, relative to uh, apparently cheaper or, or I would say, cost-effective alternatives.
1: I agree also. And I think that one of the major things that I I think, you know, uh, I'm a huge fan of Eastern European markets and investment in Eastern European markets. I laugh, you know, when you hear these professors and they still use the terminology in classes unbelievably follow the Berlin Wall, the end of history, you know, and that zeal of the winds of change, right? That song we always listen to. But I think that, you know, they went through a, lo- a real rough go of it, you know, and trying to get on their feet economically and be able to compete specifically with their Western European counterparts. And I think now we're starting to see that. And what's the future of Eastern Europe in this, uh, this global economy we have? Where, where is the? I mean, I'm not saying maybe every case, but I'm saying in general, w- what's happening there? well
0: i think that the it's it's got a very bright future because the traditional traits of some of the uh, emerging economies are not evident in these eastern european economies for example they they are not economies like uh, some latin american economies that we are unfortunately seeing right now like argentina that constantly uh, uh, take the uh, the easy measures of massive devaluations and huge government intervention. So there are a lot they, they, the, the Eastern European economies have a combination I would say uh, in general uh, in, uh, the Eastern uh, obviously there are differences but if we put them together there's a combination of rule of law adherence second is strict Money control, incredible, incredible uh, understanding of the risks of taking aggressive monetary policies when there's no demand for your currency. And third is that these economies have have had to compete with Germany so having to compete with germany makes you makes you become wiser and become uh, more attractive by by leading by example not not trying to uh, not trying to let's say just follow the tailwind so i think that the the big difference with the with the african and latin american uh, economies that we always look at uh, these almost endless opportunities that never seem to uh, to to really flourish as we expected is that they have learned the lesson of sound money and they have also learned the lesson of putting investor security and legal security as key principles of economic growth absolutely you
1: know um let me shift to something that, you know, this is big. People are talking about this. And, you know, what gets to me also about what I'm about to say is it amazes me that the average person is so unknowing about this thing that is definitely going to affect the entire world. And that is blockchain, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. Yeah. Is that going to be global? Is governments going to be able to regulate that? And how do you think that it's going to affect the global economy in the next five to ten years?
0: Mm-hmm. If we start, <clears throat> if we start from, the, from the situation where we are right now is that we live in a very, very, very thin balance of uh, confidence in the monetary system. You, obviously, you know, you're talking in the United States. We're talking in, in, in London and we don't have a view of uh, uh, things getting dramatically worse because these are world reserve currencies. Phenomenal. Now, the problem is happening elsewhere. The problem is happening in, in Africa, it's happening in Asia, it's happening in the Middle East, it's happening in Latin America, is that there's a not growing discontent with the monetary system of each of the countries, is growing evidence that every time that the government faces some structural challenge, it is going to destroy the currency and the currency's purchasing power in order to maintain its, uh, its, its imbalances. Therefore, whats what we're seeing is, uh, is that uh, more and more people are that don't have, for example, access to gold or silver, have found a new way of escaping the monetary destruction of their central bank in their home country and for example I was in Nigeria uh, a few you know a, a year and change ago and they were th- there was a growing mass of citizens that without having tremendous understanding about the monetary system knew that the central government it was going to was going to devalue 30 40% anytime it could so what they were doing was to look for something for an alternative that becomes a reserve of value and a unit of change a real reserve of value and a unit of change that is why it's so important to, for the United States to remain the world reserve currency and not to fall into the trap of of going crazy on on money creation. Um, why? Because those citizens know that they can use something that is going to keep the purchasing power of their savings and of their salaries. And that and, and, and we're seeing that happening almost in every emerging economy in which citizens, without understanding inflation, without understanding the, the, the link between money supply and, uh, and its demand and the, and the inflationary process, etc., without understanding all of that, they know one thing. They need to escape the, the risk of their central bank destroying the purchasing power of the currency. So cryptocurrencies have one fundamental strength there, which is that they're not controlled by any central bank. Therefore, governments cannot go out and, and sort of push central banks to do crazy things. But the second thing is, and this is where we are still in undecided territory, is have they become a unit of change? Unit of exchange, unit of measure, have they, uh,
1: these cryptocurrencies become universal and widely accepted? Viewed by some, by the way, I hate to interject, but something I definitely think is they, a lot of people on the other side, in the uh, second or third world, uh, to use those terms, um, they view it as a great equalizer, a lot of them. Absolutely. Absolutely, they do. So the the way the way that I'm that I'm
0: that I'm seeing cryptocurrencies is that they're a very healthy alternative that is making central banks and is definitely making central banks in the Western world rethink their their policies uh, because. Because one of the problems that that, you, that that a central bank in the Western world, in the first world, in uh, wherever you want to call it, uh, in the United States, in the, in, in the UK, in, in the leading economies cannot do, is destroy the uh, the faith, or the, the, the support of the of the local currency um so what we're seeing in those countries is exactly as you were mentioning is a growing discontent and an alternative that is not going to be making citizens look for look for opportunities in in any other in any other reserve of value however these are nascent Currencies. We don't know. There's a great book, small book, by the way, by by Frederick von Hayek, which is called the denationalization of currency in which people can can see that he already envisioned this. But what we need to understand is that cryptocurrencies, many, the vast majority of them will disappear. Well, some some of them will may become uh, contenders but the vast majority obviously will disappear because what what a, what a world reserve currency needs is actually that it becomes widely accepted by
1: everybody you know one thing that also that I want to cover with you is it's amazing to me in the United States at least about this growing fear of somehow this wave of I feel much needed uh, nationalism that we see, you know, not just with the election of Donald Trump, but with the Brexit movement and what you see in Italy and, you know, to a uh, definitely to an agree in Greece and the other countries. But okay. and, you know, they, they want to say that this is, you know, the end of the global economy. The you know, countries won't trade like they will. And it's going to lead to a global recession. I don't believe that. What are your thoughts? And I think it's fear mongering in lead up to our 2020 elections here in the United States. What do you think?
0: I completely agree with you. I mean let's let's start from from why these movements happen. Most of these movements happen because the the, the average citizen is not against free trade obviously is not against having a, a more connected better world in which everybody trades with each other in which the the Indian the Chinese economy thrives and it helps everybody and it's good for everybody else etc that is so that is fine. Now there's been a slight, again, difference, but very important difference in the process of globalization, which has been that has been directed by uh, entities, super, supranational entities, that had not necessarily. Uh, bad intentions but definitely um a very interventionist and very uh, non uh, local approach so they the, they were looking for the benefits of globalization without thinking about the challenges of Globalization. And that's where the difference that many commentators in the US make between globalization and globalism. Not the same thing, no? Globalization, we're all happy with it. Globalism is different. Globalism is that a few uh, leaders direct the economy of each of the countries based on what they believe is best and does not necessarily have to be the best for the individuals in the countries. So the nationalistic movements, the UK one, for example, is a response to a European Union, for example, that they perceive uh, that is obviously not responding to the type of society that the UK wants. So obviously as the european union went from an alliance of countries that uh, traded together that looked for the biggest benefits for each other to a completely different thing which is the uh, which is the uh, the political the political angle the directed economy and directed model then some people rightly Probably say ah, that's not with me. That doesn't go with me. Why do I need to accept? Why? Why in order to accept the benefits of trading globally, do I need to sort of have this uh, added mm, requirement of? having to accept an intervened uh, directed economy by a few bureaucrats maybe in Brussels no i think that the same thing happened in the united states with uh, with donald with the election of donald trump is that clearly the united states citizens felt that in in the process of globalization the united states was always given something in exchange for Benefits for somebody else, but many citizens felt probably rightly betrayed in the process. No, and probably rightly betrayed because also the promise of the intervened economy was impossible. The promise of the of the of the globalized um, WTO, UN, uh, IMF, etc., driven is impossible to achieve. And I think it starts from a very from that problem. So I think no, I don't think that nationalist movements are going to destroy world trade? Obviously not. I don't think that they are going to take a dramatic action against things. I think that, they, that it's just shifting things closer to those that have not felt the improvement. No. And and you know and it's perfectly normal. At the end of the day, the reason why we want a globalized world is because uh, we want two things. The world is more global, more interconnected. There's more trade and better opportunities for everybody. Great, but we're also more local than ever. We want closer communities. We want better opportunities, not just for the capital of a country or for just for, for one uh, small percentage of the population that is lucky enough or has the coincidence to live in an area, but for everybody. And precisely true globalization, true global economies don't need those levels of detail in multilateral agreements. When you reach multilateral agreements, remember, you know, recently there was an agreement between the European Union and the Latin American countries. It took, I think it was, it took like 20 years to make. Why would you take 20 years to make a, 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 a multilateral agreement on trade? Because it's so convoluted with the demands of different politicians, etc., that it becomes almost something that is impossible to implement. So when we're talk, uh, the, I think that these nationalist movements in, 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 a, in, in, in some way are responding to the fact that global leaders had too many summits all over the world forgetting about the vast majority of their electorate and I think that what we've seen in the United States and actually what we are seeing in the United States in different areas of the political landscape, not just, uh, not just on the conservative uh, uh, Republican side but also on the Democrat, is that, is that there is less talk about big picture numbers. I think that the big mistake of the Obama administration was to obsess with big picture numbers, with very, very quickly increasing, for example, GDP, without thinking about maybe the long-term implications. And I think it's back to it's back to what you what what it is is that people uh, want want the world to be better, want everybody to be better, want to trade more, but they also want it to be uh, closer to The local economy, if that makes sense to you, is that we become more more close, but don't forget who we are. And we cannot just say, oh, everything is fine. You know, everything is fine in London. But hey, what a pity. Uh, Accrington, which is up north, uh, Accrington is gone. no. You don't need to do that, you see? There is no need to give up in in the opportunities that a global interconnected world gives. There is no need for uh, leaders to go to a summit and basically, maybe without knowing it, make an agreement that leaves 30% of the population behind.
1: Absolutely. Um, one more question um, before, and I'm just, I'm honestly, I know it's a huge question. And maybe we are maybe hunting for sound bites here, because I think that this question is right up all, both of them. You're in my alley. And the input, impl- I don't know, the effects of this is going to be mind blowing. And there, I don't think there is a clear answer to it. What is going to happen in the next five to ten years, in your view, with the uh, the rise of basically robotics and ma- not only just manufacturing, but Using GPS is for, you know, steering ships, steering trucks, moving commodities, things like this. Mm. Robotics is coming. And how is it going to affect, uh, I don't know, the economics of the world? I mean, yeah. I mean, are we all just going to start drinking uh, micro brew beers and philosophizing about the stars because all of our work will be done forever? Or what's going to happen here? Well,
0: I have a very clear view about it and obviously it's my opinion but history shows us that technology does not destroy jobs technology creates more jobs than the ones that it that it uh, replaces it does not destroy them it replaces the jobs that we don't want to undertake and what we need to do in the face of technology disruption is to be prepared is you know education it's uh, it's competence it's improvement in skills and it's it's showing people where the opportunities are happening What's happening in many countries is that the obsession of many leaders of Holding on to the old model and this comes back to China and, and to the European Union Which has completely abandoned the technology race. It's, it's not even it's not losing it That has not even presented itself to the technology race is that they these governments have forgotten that what the what you need to do to to is to embrace change. And embrace change means a lot of things. means means building global leaders and at the same time uh, developing the skills in the, in, and resources uh, for education and for, and for uh, the, the population to improve and to get, get the transition, not only in a smooth way, but in a successful way. If we look at the countries with the highest level of robotization, like uh, South Korea, etc. There are also, also countries that have the lowest level of unemployment. And the reason for it is because there are also countries in which the, the government and the and the business leaders and the civil uh, society have gathered together and embraced change in order to make it uh, the best possible for everybody i think that is, i think that technology is going to be is, the technology race is going to be tremendous and it's not going to destroy jobs i think that the only thing that will destroy jobs is and that's where what i get worried about the some of the actions taken by the european union is If your decision collectively, and not because of evil, because they're evil, but because they don't even think about it unwillingly, what they're doing is to to make it worse for the collective of workers that will see some form of, of, of uh, change or replacement in their activities uh, by uh, subsidizing low productivity and penalizing fiscally high productivity. That is a big risk. So, technology does not uh, destroy jobs. Technology will create more jobs than we've ever imagined. I always say to my students that if you followed the the predictions of the big minds of the late 80s, by now we would have run out of oil, we would have run out of coal, we would have run out of jobs, and we would have run out of water. And it's not true. It's not going to happen. We would have ran out of oxygen, too, because there wouldn't be an ozone. Exactly. If you remember, if you remember 1978, Jimmy Carter said that we were running out of oil. Today, the United States... Produces 12 and barrels a day of, of, of oil. How insanely wrong can you be? No? And, and this is the problem. When we make predictions about, when, when we make an analysis of the economy and the world, we make, and I explain this in my new book, we make three types of mistakes. The first is, um, is, to be dystopic about the future, everything is going to be bad. No, the second is is to be extremely exaggerating the present. Oh, there is a, a, a bit of unemployment in this in the state, therefore it's going to go crazy all over the world. But the other one is nostalgia. The other one is to think that the the it, it was better before, and it's not, and it wasn't. So the key thing for us is to embrace change, but to embrace change intelligently, not just to say, hey, everything is going to be fine, like a, like a follower of, a, I don't know, of a cult. No, it's to say, look, things are going to be tremendous. Let's prepare our children, our workers, our... Uh, to, let's prepare them to understand that their job does not need to be their skill. You can be good at doing something, you can be good at playing guitar, that doesn't mean that you're going to be a guitarist. Uh, is that your job is going to be the combination of all your inside and outside abilities, no? And that, 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 is what so many people are saying gosh what am I going to do I've been all my life doing this skill therefore that is what I do no we need to make people understand that uh, that new jobs can can will come to you if you don't focus on one skill but if you focus on all of your other abilities no and I think that uh, again it's a it's a combination of business leaders, Small and medium enterprises, uh, intellectuals, and, and governments understanding that the future needs to be uh, needs to be the the way to make a better future is to create it, not to fear it. And, and we can create those things without trying to come back to 1980. 1980 is not going to come back. 1970 is not going to come back. The Ms. Ocasio-Cortez that wants to go back to the uh, New Deal of uh, Roosevelt era, that's not going to happen. What you need to do is to understand the challenges and prepare for those challenges. And that can be done absolutely without a problem. So I would be... I would be optimistic, but responsibly optimistic.
1: I do wish that the music of the 80s would come back, though I have to say that. I oh know.
0: God! You're, oh, we're entering a very—I mean, you're telling me, <laughs> you know? Uh, what can I say? I mean, I'm a big, big music music fan, and uh, oh my gosh, yeah, that—that that, you know. Uh, but and Van Halen is not going to come back either, so let's—that's—that's that's a
1: pity as well. Right. Van Halen, not Van Hagar. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I do want to thank you today, Dan. Um, by the way, if people are looking for you and they're, they're hearing this and they're like, you know, I love what he's saying. Where can I hear more of it? Where can they find you out on the interwebs out there? Where can they find you?
0: If anybody wants to follow me, you can follow me on Twitter. My account is at D-L-A-C-A-L-L-E underscore I-A. So calle underscore I-A for international account. it's That's the, the English Twitter account that I have. Uh, you follow me on my website. It's com. so D-L-A-C-A-L-L-E.com, uh, with articles and videos in English and Spanish. You can follow me on YouTube. There's also a Daniel Lacalle uh, YouTube channel with all my videos and uh, interviews on CNBC, on Bloomberg, on CNN, or, or anywhere else. And uh, where else? Oh, Instagram. Uh, but uh, I'm still very, very nascent on the very in the beginning stages of Instagram. But so it's not difficult to find me. You put Daniel Lacalle on Google. It's reasonably easy to find me.
1: I think me and you both have the same problem on Instagram. And I think we probably lack the bikini body to have the uh, following that. It takes. <laughs>
0: that is definitely. That's the, you know, I always, <laughs> every time that I every time that I hear you should post a picture on Instagram, I say, oh, my gosh, it's going to be a difficult one to choose.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Well, um, guys, everybody that's listening, I want to say, as always, you can find us at our website, our home, which is www.newrightnetwork.com, and also on all social media. That is Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Parler. uh, I couldn't even tell you how many. It's at New Right Network. That's one word, at New Right Network. And I want to thank you for joining us. And as always, have a great day. You've been listening to New Right
0: Network. Mobilizing, countering, energizing. Online at newrightnetwork.com.